everyone, and welcome to the first episode of Mystifyingly Missing. My name is Franny Jefferson, and I'll be your host as we explore and dissect disappearances. I'm not only going to try to break down these cases and hopefully find some type of solution or come up with different ideas, but I'm going to try to see if some of the sensationalism that surrounded some of these cases actually helped or hurt the investigations. Some of the disappearances that we review may be solved, but many will be unsolved as well. And you may have noticed that there was a question mark in the title. This was done on purpose, and this was done to show that many times we'll see adjectives describing an unsolved disappearance, such as mysterious, and of course, that belongs because of its unsolved, that is the category of the case. We may also see words such as baffling, bizarre, perplexing, strange, and mystifying, and I'm sure the list could go on and on. Sometimes that adjective is there just to fill a space, basically, because again, really, any unsolved mystery and even some that are solved can still fall into those categories. But other times these words are used to draw people in or used for an agenda to sell a newspaper or get someone to click on an article and hence click on some ads. Some people may use terms such as supernatural or paranormal. And when it comes to paranormal, honestly, we can't say that things may not be because the actual definition of the word paranormal is something that is outside our purview and the understanding of science that we have. So theoretically using that definition, something may be paranormal, but it may still have a logical explanation, just be beyond our realm of understanding. However, if you know this was actually the reason for a number of disappearances, then I would probably think that we'd have an answer to what paranormal actually is in those cases. But I do want to take a look at the media impact to see if some of these cases were really as bizarre or unusual as media may have said they were and whether or not that impacted you know, the nation or the community's thoughts on the case. Now, disappearances can take such an unknown and unspeakable toll on the loved ones of the person that is missing. Unless you've experienced it, I don't think you can really understand. Now, I've never had a loved one disappear, but unfortunately, I've known eight people that have been murdered in five separate incidents. Each of these cases, except for one, had a trial where the killer was brought to justice, whatever justice was for that particular case. And the one that was not, it was because he killed himself before he was arrested. But even knowing the facts of these cases, knowing the why, the who, I can't say that I feel any closure to any of them. I've not seen remorse in any of these convicted killers so I don't know if that would help at all, but I do still have nightmares, especially on one of those cases. So to go a step further and imagine not only 
not being able to see your loved one, but to not know what happened, I don't think the word closure could even be considered in those cases, much less achieved. There would always be some type of lingering, lingering question and this never-ending feeling of loss. Every missing person case should be taken seriously, and each one should be given as much coverage as is needed. However, even at the time of this podcast, there are a few very prevalent missing person cases that are making the rounds on documentaries, um, podcasts, and even within a day of a disappearance, we may see a number of different episodes and different mediums used to provide information on that. In a type of crime where every second can count, this is extremely important to make sure that people have information, have a description of a person and the facts surrounding it so that the police or other law enforcement agencies will be able to hopefully come to a happy conclusion. However, sometimes the coverage on these disappearances are done for other ulterior motives and not necessarily to actually bring a closure to the case. So the media can sometimes bring about a hindrance if incorrect or incomplete information is provided or if rumor is presented as fact. Looking at different cases, we can sometimes see that the difference of just one little detail that can take a case from the back page to the front page. It can take it from no coverage to nonstop coverage. So that one little detail can sometimes make a, key, a case seem tabloid-esque and that sells. And you know, if something actually sells and it does help solve a case, then that's perfect. But I really have to question how often this actually does happen. So I'll be exploring some of the disappearances that may have been labeled in some of these ways. And there may even be a couple of instances of objects that have disappeared, such as in one case, an entire room. So I hope that you'll join me as we try to break down these cases and see if there is a possible solution or if they've been solved, if that solution was as spectacular or unbelievable as the media may have made it out to be. And yes, I do understand that by presenting a podcast, I am part of the media, but I do want to present each case as factually based um, with the information that we do have. So the way that I'll present these cases is I will review the facts as they're given, and then at the end, I'll review some theories that are either floating around about it or theories that I may have, and sometimes a certain theory may fall into both of those cases. So before we actually jump into the details of this case, I do want to say that I'm in no way a legal or forensics expert. I have obtained my information through publicly available documents and sources, my information can only be as valid as the articles that I review. And as a reminder, some of these cases may take place before cell phones, the internet, and the time where information was at the tip of our fingers. This can be a very important detail when exploring some of these cases. Also, any conclusions that 
I draw from these are just based on the facts of the case that I have and are not to be considered any type of allegation made against anyone nor meant to offend anyone. So with that being said, let's jump into the case of Keith Reinhard. So this case actually involves the disappearance of two men and a dog on two separate incidents about a year apart. And it's this that really made the case so well known. And it wasn't the first disappearance that caused the stir, but the second. Keith Reinhard was approaching his 50th birthday. Now, to um, just show an example too of how sometimes media may present some information and we have to do a little bit more digging. Um, there were actually two different birth dates that I could find. Um, some articles either had the date of his birth or some gave it in terms of years and sometimes they didn't match up. So there were some discrepancies. So I did review the Charlie Project, which is a website dedicated to gathering information regarding the missing and unidentified. And I was also able to find a cold case file, um, just a one sheet um, piece of information regarding this. And that was a cold case file in Colorado. And this did also list the birth date as September 10th, 1938. So that's you know, given the sources of that information, that's the date that I'm going to go with. Now, this just shows, too, that one little detail can be confused over time. And sometimes, the longer we are from the actual incident, one piece of information can be told incorrectly time and time again until it's almost viewed as fact. Now, if I do find any discrepancies, not only in this case, but any upcoming, I will be sure that I preface that information with those discrepancies. And also, any sources that I use, whether it be a podcast, an online article, or interview, anything like that, I'll make sure all the links are listed in the description of the episode. Now, Keith Reinhardt had worked for over two decades as a sport, sports writer for the Chicago Tribune. Now, Chicago is a pretty active city and living in the hustling and bustling city was starting to take its toll. He was described in some ways as a free spirit and Keith wanted to experience the outdoors as he was approaching this milestone birthday. He thought he had become a little bit out of shape and had gained some weight he also wanted some inspiration to do what so many writers aspire to do, write a successful and meaningful novel. Though being somewhat of a writer myself, I think sometimes just the act of completing a work from the beginning to the end that comes from your heart can be just as fulfilling, whether or not it sells one copy or a million even though I think most of us could agree that a million copies wouldn't be bad either. And Keith also loved photography. So with the help of an old friend, Keith was actually able to find a way to combine a lot of the things that he wanted to do. Keith knew someone who lived in a quiet, tiny town in Colorado, and he thought that that town sounded perfect. He and Ted Parker had grown up living across the street from each other, and some would even describe them more like brothers. 
So in June of 1988, Keith took a sabbatical from his job at the Tribune for three months and moved to a little town called Silver Plume, Colorado. Now, to give you a little bit of information about Silver Plume, um, it's in Clear Creek County in Colorado, and as the name may suggest, there was actually some silver mining that went on around that area. Now, as many places are in Colorado, if not all, um, Silver Plume was above sea level. The elevation was actually 9,101 feet. So it's already pretty high up there. Um, so we need to remember that going forward. And also that with elevation, there's also you know, colder temperatures and more risks that people may take. So we'll get into that a little bit further um, on in the story, but I did just want to provide some basic information about Silver Plume. Now, it, when it said that the town was tiny, that's kind of an understatement. However, it is pretty densely populated. The actual town itself has an area of one-fifth or 0.2 square miles. So you know, it's not very large at all in terms of actual land and geography. And as far as being pretty densely populated, because the town actually has on average between 150 and 200 people, it can actually make up um, a number of about 541 people per square mile. So you know, that's still a pretty you know, high number. Now in the 1990 census, there were 134 people listed in the registers. Now that did go up some in 2000, but the estimated population in 2019 had fallen down to 177. Living in this town against the backdrop of gorgeous mountains, Keith really thought that this was the perfect place to go to. And in order to make a living still while he was there, he decided to open an antique shop in a building that his buddy Ted owned. But also, many people in Silver Plume, they were really private people. And I saw this listed in many, many different articles. So, you know, I almost wonder how Keith was able to adapt to the new town. But at the same time, Ted was a good friend of his, and Ted had lived there for a while. Now, Keith had three children, Sven, Kai, and Tiffany. And they were all older, so he didn't have little ones at home, you know, that he had to concentrate on instead of doing the things that he wanted to get out and do. Besides, you know, his book and losing weight and taking some pictures, he also did want to overcome his paralyzing fear of heights. So his ultimate goal was to try to make a success of the shop while he was getting an inspiration for his book. And if all of this was successful, his wife, Caroline, who he was married to for about two years, could relocate to the area. Now, um, some observations, and this is important going forward, which is why I'm mentioning it a little early, is a thought of why open a store for three months only. And that also was one of my thoughts, too. Now, 
This town, again, was by all accounts under 200 people. There could have been some tourists going there just based on the mountains and hiking in that area. But this was also before the days of things like eBay and Facebook Marketplace or any other type of online store. So what this would mean is that basically almost everyone within the town of Silver Plume would want to buy antiques every month. Otherwise, it would really not be a sustainable endeavor. So if he had moved to Silver Plume looking for some inspiration, he definitely found it even more close to his rented abode than he probably realized. So you know that other disappearance that I mentioned before, along with the dog? The person who had gone missing was Tom Young. He was the proprietor who previously rented the space that Keith was in. Tom used it as a bookstore, and some may see the connection that it was used previously as a bookstore, and now Keith Reinhardt was there looking to use the, the space to be a writer. So Tom Young had told many people that he was going to be taking a trip to Europe. So it was approximately three weeks before anybody became concerned and reported him missing. Young was officially reported missing on September 7th, 1987. So when Keith heard about this, he really started to cling on to the story of a man who used to work where he was working, who stepped in the same footprints that he was stepping in. And so he decided to use Young as inspiration. So the main character that Keith made in this book was named Guy Gypsum, which there was actually gypsum in the area. So that worked out um, to describe the area as well. Now, the, the actual character was more of a combination between Tom and Keith. So there was definitely some thought going on about what Tom may have done. Keith's daughter, Tiffany, dis described her father as really wanting to get into the role of living that person's life. Um, it was almost like a character actor. But then on July 31st, 1988, you know, a little less than a year after Tom had disappeared, his remains were found on Republican Mountain. Two hunters had been in the area and found this unsettling site of the remains of a skeleton leaned up against a tree. In the vicinity, there was also a gun, as well as the remains of a dog. It was found that Tom had actually purchased a gun before he disappeared. Now, the case was quickly deemed a suicide by both law enforcement and the coroner's office. But many of those that lived in Silver Plume and knew Tom did not believe that. And at least on one point, I can see what they're saying. The first thing that I said to myself when... I read this was no not the dog personally I'm allergic to dogs but I still love them you know they have the cutest little eyes that will pull you in and I am a cat lover though and I have a cat that is very much a major part 
of her family. And I just can't imagine ever hurting him. But at the same time, I was not in Tom's shoes. But if I knew that my cat was ill or, you know, I needed to find a home for him, I would do everything possible in my power. So I can't imagine really what Tom must have been feeling and thinking about when he went up on Republican Mountain that day. Now, when many people are planning on committing suicide, they will actually give away the items that they find to be the most important in their lives. And this does oftentimes include pets. So the idea that a loving pet owner would kill his pet really did not sit well with many of the people who lived in the town. And we'll review some of the information about Tom a little bit further on once we look at the, the ideas or theories about the cases. Now, after about a week from Tom's remains being found, Keith had closed his store pretty early in the day and at around 2.30, he started to you know, go throughout the town and for much of the afternoon made it clear that he was planning on going to the top of Pendleton Mountain. He let pretty much anybody that he came across know this and a lot of people really didn't take him seriously. Even though he had only been in Silver Plume for a short period of time, I'm sure many of the locals must have already come to know him. Many of them also knew that he was afraid of heights, and he had also suffered vertigo previously as well. There is one retelling of the story about Keith trying to you know, take that climb before, and he actually was so terrified of heights that he had to hold on to a tree. But besides going to Silver Plume to try to get inspiration for his book, he was trying to overcome some fears as well. So even though he may not have had the best experience when he was trying to climb the mountain before, he was still looking to try to over, um, overcome those fears before he turned 50. So the last person that we know that he spoke with was his friend Ted. He popped into Ted's cafe at around four o'clock saying that he was going to climb Pendleton Mountain and that if he did not come back, he should call on the West rescue team. And like most others, Ted just thought that he was joking. So you know, didn't take him seriously, didn't think about the fact that he was getting ready to go to this mountain with nothing. And as a reminder, the town itself is at a 9,000 foot elevation. So it can get rather chilly or cold at almost any time of year. He went without any water, no food. So like everybody else, Ted just thought he's joking around because of what he was going up without. Now what he did have on was a flannel shirt, a pair of jeans, and sneakers. Now myself, I'm not really a hiker. Um, any trails that I've gone on have been very flat. Um, I'm from a state which really has no elevation at all. So um, everything is flat. And he had on a flannel shirt, jeans, and sneakers. Now as far as the jeans go, even though they're comfortable to wear around, they're very you know movable, they're sturdy, but they also absorb liquid 
you know, at a very high rate, which means if he's climbing a mountain, 9,000 feet is where he's beginning his elevation, then if he gets his jeans or his feet wet, it's just going to get colder. So it's going to work as a detriment. Now, pants that are normally worn would have some type of water resistant or repellent, um, you know, some type of way to repel that. His sneakers, you know, he should have worn hiking boots. And what that does is not only being waterproof as well, is it protects the ankle. So he went out pretty much like he was just going for an everyday walk. Also, it takes on average six hours to ascend. He was leaving approximately around 4.30, give or take some time. People did see him heading towards Pendleton Mountain. And looking at it being four o'clock, there was no way that he was going to be able to get to the top and come back down. He would have gotten up there at the earliest, say 10 o'clock, but then what was he going to do? It was still dark, he would be tired, with no water, no food, so how did he really expect to come down? At that time, sundown was around 8 p.m., so he had maybe four hours of light, but that would leave the other two to actually make it to the top, and then all darkness on the way down. And the further you do go up on any mountain, it does get colder. So you get to a point where there's this line where there's no vegetation. Um, it clears off as far as trees, um, bushes, anything like that. So he would have gotten to a certain point in elevation where there was nothing but open space but that space would have been rugged. It would have had rocks. Um, it would have had cliffs possibly. So this would not have been an easy hike even during the day in the best of weather. So what I'm gonna do is give you some information about Pendleton Mountain. Now Pendleton Mountain is over 12,000 feet in elevation. There are a few different um, elevation heights that are listed, but they only usually vary by 20 to 30 um, feet, so it's not a major difference. And if you're going through the trail, it actually is about 11.5 miles. And on that trail, you usually gain on average at least 1,800 feet. But remember too, without, um, he may have been going past the trail, which would have put him at over 12,000 feet. Now, the mountain itself is part of the Arapaho National Forest. If you do look for this online, um, you may want to look for Gray's Peak, which is one of the topographical locations that you can look for from Pendleton Mountain. It doesn't always come up in searches that I found, but also to, um, as I mentioned before, there is a Mount Pendleton, so just make sure that um, you're looking at the one for Colorado if you want to take a look at any of that. So, you know, like I said, he was seen heading towards the mountain. And you know, just going with the lack of equipment, he was already starting you know, off on a really bad foot. 
no pun intended. So the next day when Ted and other locals saw that he was in fact not where he was supposed to be, the store wasn't open, he wasn't home, they did actually call search and rescue. Now this was a huge search. There were helicopters and planes were brought in, um, there were searchers with trained dogs, and for seven days they had this full-on search for Keith. Now he didn't really give an exact location to say, okay, I'm going to specifically hike the, the trail. Um, you know, he didn't give anybody any information other than pretty much I'm going to the mountain. Now, there were, there were a lot of concerns because besides, you know, what I've mentioned as far as um, you know, getting the clothes wet, the shoes wet, that does bring about a higher chance of hypothermia and so that would be a factor in how long that he could possibly survive up there by himself. The food and water is another issue. There have been a few reports saying he did take a can of soda but one can of soda it's not going to cut it not even going to come close. So there were a lot of concerns and something that you know, you may not think of immediately when you think of a mountain, usually a lot of people do think of the trees, the lushness, the thick, you know, um, thick foliage. But once you get to that point above that line where there's no trees and no grass, nothing, um, for one thing, it's snowing and it's too cold to actually support any of the growth that's the, that other parts of the mountain have. If he hadn't actually made it up there, he would be out in the open with no cover. I did listen to a few podcasts um, regarding this disappearance. I'd been familiar with it for a while just because of an Unsolved Mysteries episode many, many years ago. But um, the two podcasts that I really gained uh, the most information from was Trace Evidence and Stephen Pacheco, who is the... Um, person who really runs that podcast. He does a really good job of explaining things to people who aren't familiar with hiking and you know, all the aspects of that. I also listen to Locations Unknown and they are hikers and I really enjoy their show. So you know, there's a lot of good information from there and one of the biggest takeaways was lightning. A lot of people don't think about it right away when they think of mountains. If someone were to say that someone was injured or killed while they were hiking on a mountain, most people would probably think there was a trip and fall. Um, depending on how they were climbing, the rope might have broke. If it was a high altitude mountain with you know a lot of inherent dangers, which most mountains do have some, then you know, it could have possibly been hypothermia but it's not readily thought of that lightning is a big factor in people being injured or even killed. The mountains are the highest things there, and again, it's out in the open, and that's where it's going to strike. The searchers were, at this point, looking for the proverbial needle in a haystack, and even though everybody went at the search full force, and this was actually the biggest search and rescue in the state of Colorado at that time, they were not having any success. 
this was really quite unusual for them because in the approximately 30 years that the search and rescue had been operating, they had had a 100% success rate to that time of either rescuing or recovering um, any lost and missing hikers. So, so this shows that the team was very, very efficient, that they knew what they were doing. So it was very frustrating to, at this point, not have any bit of evidence about where Keith may be. Now, of course, his friends wanted to try to figure out what was going on and try to help in any way they could. So some people went to the shop um, and where he was writing and tried to find if there was anything there that might lead to information where Keith might be. In his office, they actually found a newspaper that had the headline from the previous week. And that's when Tom Young's body had been found. And, you know, the computer was there. It Remember, this is 1988, so there's not passwords on every single thing, um, you know, like today. So they took a look at it to try to figure out, you know, what his thought process was at the time. And these were the words that they found on the computer. And these were the last things typed for the book that Keith was writing. It says, and I quote, Guy Gypsum changed into some hiking boots and donned a heavy flannel shirt. He understood Tom now and his motivation. Guy closed the door, then walked off towards the lush, shadowless Colorado forest above end quote. So really the only difference here is that Keith was wearing tennis shoes and not hiking boots. And given that he was, you know, in a very small town away from any shops that might readily have them, that does not surprise me too much. Um, it would surprise me a little that he hadn't brought any with him if that was the case. But regardless, tennis shoes were replaced in, by hiking boots within the story. So this, of course, led to a lot of speculation about a few different theories that we'll touch upon in a few moments. So I have to ask myself here that if this had been a case of a man who had just moved to town and was writing a book, he took a hike and went missing, would we still be discussing it 40 years later? Or is it because that in less than a year, a town with though a disputed total population was less than 200 that can be agreed upon you know, pretty much across the board that it was under 200 at this time and two people went missing and that those two same people would be working out of the same shop and that the second person was basing a book off the first person's disappearance and his life now all of these parallels can lead to the case having more notoriety and again, if doing something like this, if getting that notoriety, notoriety can get the information out that someone is missing, then by every means, every channel should be utilized to the best of the ability at that time. But my thoughts are that many people listened and reviewed the story more for the coincidences and even the conspiracy theories that this has kind of spawned. So if Tom Young had not gone missing, we may not be sharing this podcast today. We may not have heard of Keith Reinhardt or Tom Young or even poor Gus. 
So looking at it from the endurance of this particular missing persons case, I really have to ask, you know, would we still be talking about this if there had not been the disappearance of Tom Young? But overwhelmingly, if you know, those who are familiar with looking at disappearance cases and you know, are into the true crime genre, if somebody mentioned a hiker going missing that was writing a book, they might think of Keith Reinhardt. But honestly, even to myself, the name of the person that he was mirroring um, the life of in his book, the name of Tom Young, I wouldn't know that immediately. So within this one case, we have you know two different instances and where one name is barely remembered, it's really a footnote in the story of Keith Reinhard. And, you know, I'm, it is only by Keith going missing that, you know, the story of Tom Young got out. So, so that of course was kind of a headline grabber. You know, second man goes missing in town with 200 population or something like that. And once reading the story and finding out what it's about, it really does pull people in because there are so many parallels. It's those coincidences that make things more memorable. So with this particular case, if someone says, okay, well, you know, looking at everything, he probably just fell and hurt himself and unfortunately, you know, could not help himself to get back up the mountain. Again, no cell phones um, or anything like that. So if he hurt himself, he would not have a way of contacting anyone for help. And, you know, since nobody knew exactly where he was going to be, it was, again, the needle in a haystack scenario. Also, as humans, I think that most of us are hardwired to try to get an answer, to not leave something unresolved. So not having the full information on this can lead to much speculation from the more mundane and everyday reasons for disappearances, all the way to the paranormal um, and things like that. It's not being able to reconcile the two disappearances together that really makes this case stand out. Now, looking at some different theories, you know, there's of course some that come up immediately. As with most missing adults, there's always the speculation that he might have just gone out to start a new life. He was approaching 50, an age which a lot of people see as a time to go through a midlife crisis. And he had moved to Colorado just prior to that 50th birthday, so maybe he was feeling that it was time for a new start. If that was the case, Keith may even feel a need more to stay hidden than to come forward now. During the search, there were search planes, and one of those planes crashed and one of the two pilots was killed. His name was Terry Ledden. So let's say if Keith did possibly go out and start a new life, even if he thought he were able to contact his children, um, his loved ones, 
knowing then that someone had died on a search that he had caused may have caused enough guilt and even possibly you know a fear of you know, some type of criminal procedure since someone did actually die and the other pilot was severely injured so that is one theory that's come up that yes he did walk away to start a new life yet because the pilot was killed then he decided that he was not able to come forward anymore. The night before Keith left for the mountain, there had been a party in Silver Plume. He had been talking to a woman named Greta from Denver, and that's really all that we know about her, is he was talking to a Greta from Denver. He had also mentioned about visiting West Virginia. So this really put a lot into people's minds that he may have actually gone off to start a new life and that Greta may have been involved in it too. Um, the law enforcement was never able to actually get information for her. So, so that leaves that chapter open in a lot of ways. Now going on with reviewing some of the theories, yes, I mentioned it before, we will have some people who think of the supernatural. Um, some of the things mentioned were aliens Bigfoot and the Wendigo but really for the sake of argument we're just going to rule all of these out from the beginning and really break down a lot of the theories so we discussed the one about you know, going out to start a new life his family having three children that even though they're adult children that would take a lot for a person to say I'm going to move and never see the most important people in my life again. I'm not going to see my children and my grandchildren when they give them to me. So those are definitely the reactions of the family, which is very understandable. And you know, given the information of how much he loved his children, because he really did, this is kind of hard for a lot of people to come to terms with. Then we also have that Keith was following in Tom's footsteps and went onto the mountain to kill himself. Now, a lot of people who look at this theory and they find it very plausible, that's what they believe in, they always point out the similarities between Keith's and Tom's disappearances. So the major factor, or one of the major factors, is that Keith made it a point of telling everyone where he was going. And this is just as Tom had made the point to let everybody know that he was going to Europe. Now, with this theory, there are some holes, in my opinion. It's commonly agreed upon that when someone's committing suicide, they usually don't worry too much about finding the body. So, usually if someone's killing themselves, they're not going through this elaborate plan to take steps so that their body is never found. So to have someone commit suicide like this when he had a very close family, you know, most would want their body to be found, um, even if just to give their family a sense of closure. Now, Tom was very private, given how private he was and that Gus really was his best friend, it's a little more plausible that he may have committed suicide and didn't really care about the body being found, whereas it's different with Keith really having that close family and not wanting necessarily to leave them or leave them with not enough answers. 
There was also the time frame difference. Tom really left the amount of time that he was going to be in Europe, as was his excuse, you know, for a long period of time. Keith set it for one day. That really increases the chances that someone's going to start looking for you earlier and therefore we're using some type of ruse to make people um, realize that he had not come home and might be in some type of peril. If he had really wanted to say he would be gone for an extended period of time, he could have said something like he missed his wife and just wanted to go home for a few days. So that would have given him a three or four day start and you know, people would not actually start looking for him until they realized he had not come back. So that's one of the biggest things for me in, re in regards to this actual um, theory is, you know, even putting away emotions of how much a child may believe that their parent didn't go out to start a new life. We also have to look at it and in the non-emotional sense, you know, it doesn't make any um, sense to give somebody a time frame of just one day if you're going out to commit suicide you'll want that time to be extended now some of the clues or evidence caused even more questions than they actually answered um, that passage I read earlier about how Guy Gypsum just you know, walked out into the lush Colorado forest, the way it was stopped there, I can see why some might see it as a note saying, you know, I'm putting on my flannel shirt, I'm putting on my jeans, and I'm going out into the forest. However, this is coming from a writer's standpoint. You know, the book was not finished. I really think that going to Silver Plume as an inspiration for his book and him wanting to write a book, he would not just end it at that point. He would have found a way to make sure that somebody was able to send it out for publication and you know, not just leave the book unfinished there. He had done so much to try to get the inspiration, you know, even moving across the country. so. I don't think he would have killed himself without finishing that story. Just like many people want to have the answers to mysteries because we you know, internally need to know that something's been resolved. You know, I don't think he would have left the book unresolved either. Then there's foul play. And you know, a lot of this is because it was actually two people and not one. So there's actually different subcategories to the foul play theory. It doesn't really hold much water with me, um, you know, but a lot of people, including at least his, his son Kai, do believe that the foul play is what occurred here. Now, looking at the whole case, yes, two men went missing and only one was found and he was deceased. Looking at that, we can assume that the other one probably passed away as well, but had not found his body. You know, the search and rescue quoted that they were 100% up you know, until Keith's um, disappearance, but Tom's body had actually been found by non-law enforcement. So 
even though their percentage was 100%, sometimes finding someone is just a matter of being in the right place at the right time, in the right you know, lighting and snow conditions. There's thought that possibly there was information within Tom's bookstore, which became Keith's antique shop, that there was something there that was so important that it caused two people to get killed. For me, that's a little bit of a far-fetched idea, um, just because it's you know two men that's going to be bringing attention to whatever it is. If you have two men who've been in the same building, who go missing in very similar ways within less than a year of each other, there's the possibility that the store could have been thoroughly searched. So if this was a case that they found out something because of the building, whoever had committed whatever crime it's supposed to be really would be drawing attention to themselves. And this holds true from a lot of the other foul play theories that are part of this case. If I was trying to hide something, I wouldn't want to do something that would bring helicopters, planes, searchers all around the area that I was doing whatever the act was. So, you know, growing something they shouldn't um, or anything like that. What would have been that important that two lives were taken and to take the chance that multiple law enforcement agencies as well as people would be searching in those same areas. So, you know, just looking at it uh, in terms of, say, if I were the one who was committing a crime, I would be kind of afraid to do something to harm another person because that's just going to bring law enforcement, you know, make them more aware of the situation. So you don't want to cause attention to be brought to that particular spot. Another subcategory of the foul play theory is that nuclear waste was being dumped there. And it is actually a fact that yes, there was nuclear waste being dropped there. And that was being done at the Rocky Flats Point um, nuclear plant. And it had been you know, thought previously that Tom may have been an activist so he was very much into the environment and was concerned about this and that he was killed by the company. That was one theory that held in, regard, in regards to Tom's going missing, his disappearance. Now, Keith, he liked to take photographs. He was not um, seen, or at least it was not mentioned that he was seen carrying a camera but there's a possibility in, say, a previous time he had actually you know, taken a picture and you know, someone wanted to make sure that he didn't say anything about whatever the crime was either. Again, I just think it's a lot to kill two people knowing that there will be searches on the mountain. So that's why I really you know, um, disregard the foul play theory. And while it is actually true that the Rocky Flats nuclear weapons plant was shut down, they were fined immensely, they were doing things that were criminal and hurting the environment, you know, I can see why some people might think that's the big enough motive to have you know, two people killed, but still, you know, that's, that's a lot to try to hide 
without search and rescue coming in and seeing where you are dumping all these barrels. There is also another subcategory for the foul play, and that's a serial killer theory. The sheriff at the time, or one of the officers, a Steve Gramillion, was kind of vague in one of his answers. When asked about the possibility, he did mention that you know, there were some other remains that had been found over the last few years, so that just kind of fed the fire of a possibility of fair, foul play, and that it was 100% coincidence that these two men happened to go missing with so many parallels in their lives. Now there's one more possible, and I will say possible, parallel to these two lives, but it doesn't actually happen at this time. It happened, happened many years earlier. There is a documentary maker named Eric Walter, and he's working on a documentary about this case, or these cases, I should say, called The Dark Side of the Mountain. It's not out yet, um, but there are a couple trailers um, or teasers, so I'll link um, one of the pages down there in the description of the podcast. But he's he says that there is information that both men were stationed in Germany at the same time. West Germany, actually. Now, Tom Young was actually a in Special Forces, and he had been stationed there, and Keith was actually in the Army. So the idea is that they were both stationed there at one time, and maybe there is some relation or correlation to that fact that led to their disappearances. Now, I did do a couple searches and I was not able to find a document that would place both of them at the, and I'm sorry, in Germany at the same time. But if that is the case, then that means that is a very, very big coincidence that you know, that actually led to their deaths. Now, on the other hand, I will say that you know, many people are part of the military. Many people have been stationed in parts of the world you know, overseas. So it's not necessarily unusual for two people to have been at the same base at some time in their lives. The statistics or probability of that is probably astronomical. So I'd really be interested when this documentary actually comes out to see that information and you know, what Eric does have in regards to that. You know, that might help sway some people's minds as to what happened. And even if it doesn't, it's good information to have about the background of the two major people that are you know, in, in these events. Now for the next two theories, I'm gonna really talk about them back to back before I you know, kind of conclude my thoughts. Um, there's this very straightforward theory and that he got lost or injured, and he succumbed to either the injury or the elements. So basically, this would be labeled a death by misadventure. You know, again, he's in sneakers. They're not, um, you know, as firm with the ankles or supportive of the ankles. You can more easily slip in sneakers. So that's that's possibility that he could have slipped and. There's also another piece of information. It's not mentioned in you know, every um, documentary, but it was mentioned in a few. And this is in regards to the party that Keith did attend the night before. 
Now, some people have said that he consumed alcohol more than the amount that he was used to. Um, apparently, he was not really a heavy drinker, so you know, he did consume more alcohol than, than he would normally do so. I wish it had been in a few more articles just to get a better idea of exactly how much it was if he actually did any of the, have any of those drinks. So that leads many people to ask then, why would he go start a hike up a mountain at four o'clock in the evening? So there are two theories to that. Um, one is you know, inspiration, just going up there to walk and even put himself in Tom or Guy Gypsum's shoes for a little while. Just you know, walking along some of the same places where Tom Young might have to give him that inspiration. Another part of this type of theory is he actually went away and intended only to be gone for a couple of days and then you know, make a reappearance. Um, that way he got a better idea of what Tom was feeling or doing while in the forest. But going back to a previous theory about you know, if he had gone off to start a new life, some do speculate that he did go into the forest for just a few days, but once he heard that someone had died, then you know, he realized he should not be coming forward. So you know, those were two um, ideas that are pretty similar, but also we do have differences. You know, the main one being that one disappearance was forever, and then the other theory is it was just meant to be short term. And so with these last theories, my thought is it's a combination of the two. It's whether it was a slip and fall, whether he got lost, you know, it's a combination of possibly a planned disappearance. And by planned disappearance, I'm not talking even about days. It's just something that Keith was trying to get a mindset to. And he planned on being gone for just a short period of time. So really to say it was a planned disappearance is really exaggerating that a little bit. But once he did try to follow in Tom's footsteps, something happened to him. Whether it be getting injured or being lost, um, succumbing to the elements, any of those. On top of the possibility of hypothermia, um, dehydration, things like that, there's also altitude sickness. Now, altitude sickness is you know, something that can vary by person. And I am not a hiker myself, so I did actually re reach out to um, someone who does do videos on YouTube for those that are um, missing. Um, it's Brian's Mysteries and Adventures on Trail. I'll, I will leave a link to his page. I've seen every single one of his episodes and he was gracious enough to get back to me with a little bit of an understanding of altitude sickness in that it actually is different for everybody. So, you know, being at the elevation that he was, there are factors then that could play into whether or not altitude sickness affected him. Um, I do know that at one point he did have a vertigo episode, but also looking at the fact that he was dehydrated um, I wonder if that could possibly also play 
um, a factor into whether or not he would suffer from altitude sickness. So that's something too, whenever someone is ascending um, elevation, that they need to be aware of and make sure that they take proper precautions because it can range you know, from just mild symptoms to things that are more severe. If you ever watch episodes um, of documentaries about say Mount Everest or Kilimanjaro, altitude sickness can play a role even with experienced climbers. That's why on the Everest um, episodes or shows that I've watched, they have base camps so that they can gradually adjust um, it's just with the altitude that Keith was already at, I'm not sure how that would have played a role. But with altitude sickness, you know, the symptoms can be kind of minor, like a headache or some nausea. Um, but they can also become more severe where you're not getting enough, you know, oxygen um, throughout, throughout your body. And you know, that can actually lead to death. So having all the other factors, if he had gotten wet, not having food and water, you know, it's being so cold and then being at a higher elevation, all of this could have played a role. We can't say that it definitely did, but this is just one of those other factors that could have played a role in his disappearance. So I really think it was a combination of the both, both of those. He needed inspiration to try to go to the next chapter or paragraph of his book. He decided to go out, maybe emulate Tom Young for a while, walk in his shoes, and whether he was just planning to stay gone for a few hours or even overnight, he did not intend to stay that long. Something happened in the meantime that stopped him from coming back. You know, Otherwise, I don't think he would have said you know, this is where I'm going and this is where you need to look for me. In this day and age, we, I think, would have a hard time understanding how someone can just disappear. But it still happens. And it happens in cities, in towns where there's not, you know, a vast forest right there where someone may not be able to see you through the dense treetops if they're in a helicopter or plane and you've taken shelter under you know, any trees that were below the, um, the line where they could grow. It's almost impossible to see in some places for that. So even with today having cell phones on us with the GPS um, and other trackers that might you know, show where we're at, we still have people disappearing. So in 1988, it would have been much, much easier for someone to just disappear and be able to get the documents that they need in order to do so. Now, thinking of the technology that we have now and compare it to the technology back then, you know, in 1988, it's, that was a whole different era. Um, I remember having a manual typewriter at that time. So, you know, things were not like they are today. And I've seen the growth in technology and, you know, just the things that we have access to and can do. And where when someone is missing, they try to use the phone, um, GPS, and things like that. So, 
looking at what they were working with back in 1988. They may not have had all the same technology in order to, you know, find him more easily through the, the tree line. The mountain itself, you know, again, could be very slippery. There could be crevices that he may have fallen into or also a possibility if he was starting to become hypothermic, he may have taken shelter in a cave um, or you know, another crevice to try to be in a nice safe place, but this may have actually hidden him from the searchers. Now, another piece of information that um, Eric Walter did mention during his interview is, you know, as the sheriff has found um, some, or has been reported that there are other remains that they're working on um, identifying if um, the family of Keith Reinhard would be able to take DNA swabs. So, you know, that's something that probably I'm thinking, you know, we'll get more information on if it actually does turn out to be Keith. So it's just interesting to me though, if they had other, um, you know, bodies that were not identified and there was this missing person in the area, I'm kind of surprised that, um, that it was not an immediate response to, you know, try to do the DNA testing after, um, after 1988 when it really was in its infancy. One of the reasons I chose this case is it fell within a time period where we didn't have social media, we didn't have instant information, but at the same time, things did move a lot faster than they did in previous decades. And we were beginning that period where technological advances, which would then lead to social media, um, online newspapers, things like that, you know, in 1988, we were kind of on that precipice. When I was in college, and I'm going to end up giving my age here, or at least approximately, one of the teachers, or one of the professors, um, had us take this survey. He wanted to find out more about us, and it asked, how did you get your news? And even at that time, probably around 1996, I was reading whatever was available online. Um, we used old Netscape at the college, so Netscape, I'm not even sure if it's around now, um, but that's what we used for internet. It was extremely slow, but I did check in on news from my area. It was very, very basic, uh, but it was starting to grow, and I did also work as an assist assistant for someone who was working on their doctorate, and again, I you know, was starting to utilize the internet more as a means of information than was being done, say, by someone who graduated five years earlier. So, you know, 88, it was approaching that time period, and this show was, or this case was shown on Unsolved Mysteries, which really was a precursor to, you know, the true crime genre, um, what so many people listen to and watch today. You know, how everybody you know, was interested in what's going on in these cases. And the motive behind that can vary so much. It can be, you know, just looking for gossip, looking for rumors, and looking at these more for entertainment. And, you know, as I mentioned earlier, you know, I've known a number of people who have been murdered. And 
honestly, I had not thought about that much previously. I do have another podcast, Danger on Delmarva, which is um, where I'm from, and it outlines other cases, um, but they're all focused on Delaware and the eastern shore of Maryland and Virginia. And when I'm looking at that, and the same thing here, I'm trying to look at why things happen and how things can be done to prevent them again. Now with a case like this, it's hard to say how something could be prevented. For one thing, we don't really have a lot of information about what exactly his plans were. And that is one of the things that we can take away from it. If you do watch any you know, missing person documentaries, if you look at ones that are you know, centered in national parks or when people are on vacation, anything like that, one of the most important things is let someone know where you're going and when you expect to be back. Um, if someone's going to be with you, make sure someone else knows who's with you. Um, make sure you go prepared. So in this case, it was in regards to hiking and going up a mountain. You want to make sure you leave at the appropriate time and take the appropriate equipment. So some people, if they do listen to this type of true crime genre, may take that information away and help keep themselves safe in a similar situation. I also want to take a look at Tom. Tom was a very private person and there is almost nothing on the you know internet about his background. It's very, very, very little compared to what we know about Keith. And he was living in a very small town, living very close to everybody. And you know, he still was able to you know, look like he was going about things normally. He wanted to make sure nobody would stop him and then he killed himself. So, you know, what were the signs or were there any at all that someone could have looked at and said, you know what, I'm gonna go over there and just talk to him, be a friend, be supportive. You know, it's in this case, resources. What could we have made Tom aware of? Um, even just you know, lending an ear in such a small place, you may not have the accessibility to you know, mental health care, especially at that time. So, so it's a recognition that even if you look like everything is going great on the outside, that may not always match the inside. Now, in the description of my podcast, I will leave a link to you know, crisis helplines because mental health is a big issue that it's becoming addressed more and more often. It is becoming more apparent, but at the same time, there are still certain stigmas that some people see. Mental health is important. Mental health helps your physical health. It helps your emotional health. All three tie in together. So you know, I will leave that link if you ever have you know, any thoughts um, or just need information. If you need support, I'll have that description I'm sorry, I'll have that phone number in the description of the podcast. So as far as the media goes, it actually, in my opinion, did help a lot with this case as far as at least making people aware that it was happening. It may not have led to a conclusion, good or bad, 
but it is a case that people remember and if remains are ever found those may be able to be linked to Keith and if someone at that time had happened to see him there's always the possibility that they would be able to you know call in a tip and actually this does lead to something that was pretty spectacular um, this a lot of this episode has been a lot about parallels or coincidence so there's a little bit of information here which you know while Keith has not been located it did help in another instance this case also has the unsolved mysteries link there was a man who was suffering from amnesia that was found in 1994. He had been mumbling some names, so um, he was kind of given the name Pat Brown. And, you know, he tried to live his life for about four years before Unsolved Mysteries did actually air his episode. And a lot of fans of the show actually recognized there were some similarities between him and Keith. And though you know, I'm looking at it and I don't necessarily see all of the similarities, but both men did wear beards, their hair color, you know, was graying or completely gray. And just given the location, because um, he was found in Cheyenne, Wyoming, so not impossible to get to from Colorado, his case was eventually solved. Pat Brown was a man named Carl Brodnick from Indiana, so he actually was a long way um, from you know, where he was living, and his wife's name was actually Pat. And that's the name that, one of the names that he'd been saying when he was found. Um, the other names were Chris and Joel, and those were actually his children. So once he was found, they were reunited with his family. But on, you know, more of the negative side, Mr. Brodnick, you know, had stolen money from his former employer. So he was actually wanted for that he had disappeared before the arrest so doctors did say that his amnesia was true so everything though got resolved he went to indiana he pleaded guilty but he he said he does not have a memory of it but he was able to pay back the money and was put on probation so you know even though he did have that um that warrant out that he was wanted for that he was reunited with his family, and there was an interest, too, in this case because some people actually did call the Unsolved Mysteries tip line saying that they thought he was Keith. So this shows the importance of media, that even though it wasn't Keith, that there were people who still remembered him um, years after the original episode about Keith was aired. So you know, the importance of media is there. It definitely needs to get out when people are missing because time is of the essence. And seeing a story where a family can be reunited is just an amazing feeling. He was able to do what he needed to do to get his life back on track and be able to be with his wife, be with his children. And there is a picture of him and his wife starting to hug and the look on her face is just beautiful she's smiling like the biggest grin so you know it's shows the importance and power of media but i i do also want to point out 
as things are happening very quickly, since we are in a time and an age when, you know, there is um, instant access to a lot of things, we do have to be careful that we are getting all the right information, that it's not rumors, that it's not speculation, but facts are what really drive a case when someone is missing. So media plays a very heavy role when looking at media, whether it's, you know, podcasts, whether it's documentaries, either through YouTube or, you know, more professional documentaries, down to, you know, the flashes that you get from your um, local news, depending on how they do it, you know, I have notifications. Looking at them and getting the, the word out is what brings people home. And to at some point have that feeling of loss that you're not going to get that person back, I just cannot imagine ever having that. And that's what you know. I hope to do with this podcast is, you know, yes, I'm looking at some of the more well-known cases, but it's looking at some of the aspects of it, um, you know, where we can take something away. So will this case ever be solved? Maybe, we cannot say never. But if Keith's body is found, that will answer many, if not all of the questions that we have. You know, I've heard of cases where searchers, you know, searched for weeks with no luck. Then years after the disappearance, you know, the remains were randomly found by someone who probably didn't even know someone went missing there before. And, you know, speaking of that, I, I do want to recognize the searchers too. Searchers, when someone goes missing, they work tirelessly. They sometimes have to, you know, walk through knee-high snow or even higher. They have to go through treacherous terrain, and they are leaving their homes, leaving their families to try to reunite someone with their family. So it's really important that we recognize those who, in an instant, will be there who will be making plans to go out and look for someone's husband or brother or sister to you know, try to bring a closure and a resolution to them. And hopefully because of their familiarity with the surroundings and their experiences in search and rescue can bring someone home. But there's also the inherent dangers that they go through. And in this particular case, Terry Ledens paid the ultimate price. He did the biggest sacrifice that he could to try to find someone and bring a loved one home to their family. So I also want to recognize him and his family so he's not lost in this. While, you know, Keith is the one who is still missing, Terry, you know, I don't have statistics on how many people he helped find, but he was up there in his plane giving his time and trying to find someone. So you know, again, I want to recognize that Terry Ledden's sacrifice you know, to try to bring someone home and just keep that, too, kind of tucked away when you hear of a search going on, that there are people out there who care so much about people they haven't met that they're willing to make that sacrifice. Now, um, I do hope the day does come when, you know, the answers can come to Keith's families. Now... There is some sad news with his or his family had to endure another tragedy in that Keith's son, Sven, he died of an accidental carbon monoxide poisoning. Now, 
Sven, along with his sister Tiffany, worked on sets for movies. They were accountants. Um, so, you know, he still was on set when, you know, movies were being shot. Some of his credits actually include movies like Anaconda, um, The Mask of Zorro, um, Crazy in Alabama, and Black Hawk Down, according to his site. Now, he did um, pass away quite a few years ago, so there's not too much um, when you try to Google or look for information on him, but those were some of the movies that he was linked to. You know, and there's a picture of him with Catherine Zeta-Jones, um, but he also, this is what I wonder, he converted a bus into a type of motor home, and it said that he passed away while traveling to a job, so I don't know if it was something to do with that, but it's just extremely sad that, you know, a sibling was lost, and since Tiffany and him worked together, you know, they had to be very close, and my heart just goes out to them. Um, I've lost a sibling. It's something that, no matter how much time passes, I don't think it's something that you get over. So, you know, I want to express condolences, you know, for the loss of Sven. Um, it sounded like he had a very exciting career and, you know, really had a lot to give. And with Keith's case, even though it's been about 33 years since the disappearance, you know, it can just feel sometimes that the wounds that are left from this can sometimes just be rubbed and you think of something and it just, a thought or a sound brings back the memories of a happier time. And I hope that for those brief moments when they're thinking of the happier time, that they can smile and you know, be glad of the memories that they had with Keith. Now, Keith's other son, Kai, did take a plaque up to the mountain um, in inscribed with a saying, and I want to end you know, the episode as far as the information regarding the case with this. The plaque says, Oh God, I want to wander. I want to wander till I die with the mountains as my living room my only roof, the sky. So I think it's fitting for that inscription to be at the mountain to you know, commemorate Keith Reinhard. Now, I want to thank everybody for sticking in here because it's it's been quite a, a long episode, but it did involve the two disappearances and it was kind of an introduction to you know, what I'm looking at now, some of the episodes that I'm you know, looking at going forward, whenever there's a possibility of doing you know, an episode where possibly more than one person may be missing in an area, I'll you know, do my best to try to bring them together so that information can get out at the same time. And also, you know, as I said you know, previously, missing persons' time is of the essence. If I am working on a story or an episode and you know, there's someone missing, I will you know, try to get as much information as I can to add that in so that if you know, anybody does happen to see the person or has information, they can contact the appropriate authorities. Now, in the description of the podcast, I will have my contact information. I'm still working on getting some things set up, but if there are any cases that you would like me to look at, I would be happy to because, you know, I, I want to make sure that everybody's 
story is told and that everybody who can know about the case does know about the case. Again, thank you so much um, for listening. I really appreciate everyone. Um, I'm going to have the podcast available as well as um, a video on YouTube. Right now, it's probably going to be a very basic video, but I will try to work other things in um, as I get more familiar with video. And make sure that you like um, if you're on YouTube and subscribe. And you know, depending on what your abilities are with whichever podcatcher that you use, if you would like to rate or review or share the podcast, I would really appreciate it. All right. Thank you so much, everyone. I will be talking to you soon.